What is God's will for my life? Have you ever asked a question like that? Uh, many people uh, of all ages and stages of life are, are taken up with such a concern. Uh, what is God's will for my life? Where does God want me to be? What does he want me to be doing? What's his plan and his purpose for me in 2022 and beyond? Well, this morning, I'd like us to answer uh, such questions in three simple stages. Rejoice, pray, and give thanks. Always, without ceasing, and in everything. These are the distinctive and the defining marks of the one who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's will for us in Christ Baptist Church today. By way of context, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that is suffering. He'd planted the church on his second missionary journey. He'd brought the gospel to them and uh, God had been pleased to save many uh, through his efforts. And whereas the opening three chapters primarily deal with doctrine, uh, these latter chapters deal with the practical outworking of that doctrine. Before he signs off the letter, uh, Paul concludes by passing on some exhortations for the church and for their conduct, uh, not just to each other in the community in which they live, but ultimately uh, their conduct towards the Lord. And uh, these exhortations are not multiple choice. This is not down to how we feel, but the explanation is given at the bottom of Verse 18, this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. This is how you must live, even in difficult days uh, such as these. If you've seen a sergeant shouting his orders to uh, the soldiers, then notice that it is the same force with which the apostle is speaking here to the church. This is an order. This is non-negotiable. This is a divine mandate in sickness and in health we are to be as believers in Jesus in the constant business of rejoicing and praying and giving thanks well with this in mind let us look briefly in sequence uh, firstly rejoice always rejoice always uh, for a couple of years when i was uh, at university as a student i i also worked as a waiter in a busy restaurant. And one of the key things that I was always taught was the phrase service with a smile. Service with a smile. When the place was getting busy and the customers were complaining, the answer apparently was always to smile. Now, is that the kind of rejoicing that Paul is making reference to here? Is he telling us that we are to hide our sadness and frustrations behind a big fake grin? Is he saying that we're to pretend that everything is okay, to act like nothing is wrong? Well, clearly not. As Paul writes to the church, he is not endorsing counterfeit joy. Now, when he says rejoice, he's not saying that we deny the hard and the harmful and the heartbreaking realities of life. But actually, he's saying that in spite of these things, and sometimes even because of these things, we are to rejoice. 
You've seen the headlines in the past week and particularly in the past couple of years, haven't you? That they've been full of bad news. There's a, there's a virus. There are various injustices. There is discrimination. There is violence everywhere that we look. Our world is, is full of sin. And verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians 5, it does not dispute that fact. You see, Paul is not just telling us to always look on the bright side of life. We mustn't confuse this joy with being always upbeat, never depressed. No, Paul is speaking about something that is is far deeper than mere happiness. The command to rejoice is a call to display the deep down supernatural joy that comes from God. You see, Christian joy is not like earthly joy, is it? The world gets their joy from their possessions and from their position in life. It is all wrapped up in and connected to what they want and what they get. But but that is not real joy because it never really satisfies, does it? Job chapter 20 verse 5, the joy of the godless is a momentary joy. We're always on the move, aren't we? We're always on the lookout for, for the latest craze and fads. In fact, the, the story is told of the famous figure of history, Alexander the Great, who uh, conquered the known world of his day, but was once found weeping in his tent, uh, despairing at the fact that there are no more worlds to conquer. And such is the experience of so many of us, uh, that we can have everything, it seems, that the world has to offer. But it's just never enough. And that is precisely the kind of joy that Paul is steering us away from here in verse 16. This is uh, actually the shortest verse in the whole of the Bible in the Greek New Testament. Two simple words and yet so hard to follow. Such a simple command and yet so difficult to obey. And yet you know, don't you, that the word rejoice in uh, the Thessalonian context would have been a uh, a very familiar words. They would have known the word rejoice so well because it was actually uh, the word that the church used to greet one another. Instead of saying hello or how are you doing, as we often do, they would have said the word kairote, kairote, which it was really a, a, a constant reminder of their spiritual duty. How wonderful I think it would be if we adopted something like that in our churches today. Instead of a vague greeting to say something meaningful like this, rejoice. As Spurgeon once preached, he said, there's nothing that tends to strengthen the faith of the young believer than to hear the veteran Christian covered with scars from the, ba- from the battle, testifying that the, the service of his master is a joyful service. And friends, there are There are countless examples, aren't there, of such men in Scripture. Think of Paul and Silas, who in Acts chapter 16 are sitting in chains in a Philippian dungeon. They've been unjustly treated. They've been bruised and beaten. And verse 12 tells us, at midnight they sang praises to God. All of their external problems 
did not determine how they felt on the inside. Even in the midst of severe suffering, they found reason to rejoice. Or again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul again gives testimony to the fact that he was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. All of those setbacks that Paul experienced for the sake of the gospel did not steal his joy. All of that long, the, the long list of sufferings that he endured on his various missionary journeys, not enough uh, to take away his joy. You see, we're prone, I think, to thinking of, of joy and sorrow as, as opposites. You can't be them both at the same time, but, but Paul says not the case. He knew that, that sorrow and rejoicing can coexist. Even in a suffering church like Thessalonica, uh, they must be a rejoicing people. In chapter one, verse six of this letter, Paul acknowledges you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. And in the teeth of such circumstances, the call nonetheless is for them to rejoice. I wonder if you, uh, how you'd feel if you sat down with one of your uh, brothers or sisters from this church and you began to offload your burdens and your sorrows to them. And their advice looked something like verse 16. Would that encourage you? That make you feel better? And yet you see, Paul is, is no blind optimist. These verses are not just a bunch of empty platitudes. These are not just some catchy slogans to, to hang up on your wall, rejoice, pray, give thanks, but know that his message for them is his message for the church here in Christ this morning. We must be rejoicing always. So what can we rejoice in? In days like these, as the, the pandemic continues and as life is complicated, and we're perhaps worried about the future of the world in which we live. Well, I've got three things just briefly. Firstly, uh, we rejoice in what is to come. We rejoice in what is to come. Heaven is the home of, of every Christian, isn't it? It's the place of, of ultimate rejoicing. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 22. Jesus plainly says to his disciples, blessed are you when people revile or persecute you and say all kinds of evil falsely against you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. The grounds for our rejoicing is is not anchored in our present circumstances, but in the joy that is set before us, the joy of heaven. But secondly, we rejoice in, in who God is. We rejoice in who God is. God is, is on the throne. Nothing is, is too hard for him to handle. He's not uh, sitting up in heaven watching life happen like a, like a movie that he's never seen. No, we have a sovereign father who is over and above and in all. But then thirdly, we rejoice in what Christ has done. We rejoice in what Christ has done. Jesus came down from the heights of heaven to live the life that we could never have lived and to, to die the death that, that we deserve on the cross at Calvary. And is that not cause for us to be singing songs of praise? 
that is where our joy hinges, doesn't it? As believers, that Jesus has died in our place. He has cancelled our debt and he has rose again to give us hope for eternity. But actually, I should add one more. There's four things, actually. Uh, The fourth thing is that we rejoice in the Holy Spirit. We rejoice in the Holy Spirit. You see how this is all rooted in the triune God, in uh, God the Father, the Son, and now the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the presence, has the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit living inside of them. And so we can say, can't we, though we be maybe few in number this morning, that we are not alone. But the Spirit is with us. God is present. And so today, if you are a believer in Father, Son, and Spirit, then you can truly rejoice always. But the second command is to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. It has been said that if you want to humble a Christian, then ask them about their prayer life. For many of us, we are quick, aren't we, to come up with our own solutions to problems, but very slow to take up prayer. But then it's not just Christians who who pray in this way, is it? Even unbelievers who, who otherwise had little time for the things of God can be found in tragedy, suddenly uh, reaching outside of themselves in prayer. In fact, in World War II, the phrase originated that there are no atheists in foxholes, foxholes being uh, the dugouts, the trenches uh, that would have been used to shelter against enemy fire. And it was said that as the sound of bullets whistled through the air and death seemed closer than ever, than ever, many resorted to prayer, a, a last minute cry for help. And yet is that the prayer that, that Paul is exhorting us to this morning? Well, not at all. He wants us to, to pray truly. From the heart. I'm not saying that nobody ever prayed from the heart in those kind of situations, but that we, in our present circumstances, even in the midst of of ease and comfort, as well as difficulty and distress, are to be praying without ceasing. We need to pray and 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 from the heart. It must rise up and and rise to to God in 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 words. And just as we heard in that first exhortation, rejoice always. So that we mu- we must see that the the command to pray comes immediately on its heels. Verse sixteen is a is a companion to verse seventeen. This is this is no accident. They're not to be chopped up and separated, but they're actually interlinked. In effect, Paul is saying that that joyful believers will naturally be prayerful believers, and these are two ways, aren't they, that we can gauge how how deep is our faith and measure how far along we are. In our walk with God, they are dead giveaways of where we are spiritually if we are not only rejoicing, but also praying. And notice it doesn't say pray when you feel like it, but pray without ceasing. And in saying this, is is Paul, is he endorsing some kind of monastic seclusion from society? Is he telling us that we are to go and, and find a mountain somewhere far away? And to do nothing except to pray? Is he saying that we're to shut ourselves up off from society? Well, of course not. Uh, to do that would be in turn to disobey many of the other commands of, of Scripture, not least uh, to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to every creature, as we've been uh, thinking about this morning already. 
And so what is it that Paul is instructing us to do this morning? Well, he doesn't mean that we're to be always vocalizing words of prayer every single second of every single minute of every single day and so on. But we are to be dependent upon God for everything. We are to always respond to every challenge and every blessing with prayer. And there are many examples that you can think of uh, who, who, who acted in such a way. You remember Daniel in the Old Testament and his response to the decree that was passed that, that no one could pray to anyone except to the king or else they would be thrown into the den of lions. It was a terrifying prospect, but uh, chapter 6, verse 10 of that book tells us, but Daniel went to his house, got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before God as he had done previously. He wasn't going to give in, was he? Or think about the ultimate example of of Jesus Christ himself and how how frequently he took himself out into the wilderness to, to be alone with his father, to pray to him. As the son of God, he was in constant communion with his heavenly father. And, and that is the access that, that you and I have today. We are to be praying without ceasing and knowing that we come before a God who is accessible to us. Uh, there's an iconic photograph, perhaps you've seen it, of uh, the 35th American president, JFK. And he's sitting at the famous desk in the Oval Office and he's reviewing papers, he's taking phone calls, he's got authority and power at his fingertips. And then you glance your eyes down the photograph and there under the desk is his son, three years old, peeking out from the panel uh, that he called the secret door. You see, for all of J.F. Kennedy's power, he was still a father. While he had authority and control, his son still had total access into his presence. And you know, friends, if you go by the title of Christian this morning, then you bear the name of sons and daughters. You have been adopted and you have been brought into the family of the God who has all power over, over presidents and kings and queens. And yet we also have total access into his presence through prayer. We don't need to be booking an appointment. We don't be put on a waiting list and, uh, and wait our turn. No, we can, we can in, in prayer have immediate access towards our heavenly father. And the door is always open for us. He's always there, willing to hear and willing to respond. God is never too busy for you. He's never too busy for his people. He's always at home. He's always ready to hear and answer his children. But also Ephesians uh, chapter 3 verse 20 tells us and reminds us really that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So it's not just that God is accessible, but God is also powerful. There's no challenge too great for which we cannot pray. He is a big God, and so we can pray big prayers. He is equipped and he's able to deal with whatever comes his way. No timing is inconvenient. No location is too remote. No challenge is too great. Paul is, has learned that to be true. He was a man who was always on the move. He had a, had a much busier missionary schedule than I do. 
And yet we might conclude that the strength and the success of his ministry and the fruit from all of his labors had their roots in prayer. Uh, these days, it's, it's hard to go uh, five minutes without your phone buzzing or a, a maybe a social media alert or an alarm reminding you to be somewhere. Uh, we're living in a world, aren't we, that is, that is full of distractions. And yet there are no exceptions or excuses that are put here. There's no little asterisks and there in the footnote we can say, well, if you're, if you're busy, then leave it off. No, pray without ceasing. That's it. Someone once said that prayer for the Christian is like spiritual breathing. You can't live without breathing. And that is how natural it must be for us as we pray. As air is to the lungs, so prayer is to the soul. And so then, just as I used in my first point, some practical helps then for prayer. And maybe you're familiar with the Acts acrostic, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Well, the word that is used here is in, in this text is the most common word for prayer in the New Testament. It encompasses every kind of prayer that you can think of. Firstly, we might say adoration then. We start by looking up at God and we worship. Secondly, confession. We look in at ourselves and we admit our sin to God. Thirdly, thanksgiving. We look back at our past and around us at present and we give thanks for the many blessings that we have been given. And then fourthly, supplication. We look out and we look forward to the future uh, and we petition. We, we ask and we seek and we knock. We make our needs known to God. And that doesn't mean that we come before God like a genie in a lamp, but that we include all of our supplications, all of our requests alongside the other kinds of prayer as well. We have access to a God who, who is not clueless about the future, but one who sits upon the throne ruling and reigning. And so let us not only rejoice in, in who he is and what is to come and how he has saved us, but let us also pray without ceasing. But then finally, uh, look at verse 18 with me. Give thanks in everything. Give thanks in everything. Notice the progression here. Rejoicing Christians are prayerful Christians and prayerful Christians are thankful Christians. Now, with all that is going on in our world today, you may think, well, this is a, a slightly inappropriate point to be finishing on when, when all around us there is distress. Surely we could hold off on Thanksgiving till at least we're on the other side of the pandemic. And yet the Apostle Paul here in verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 5 would counter that. Yes, even at such a time as this, it is not just appropriate, but it is mandatory for us to be pouring out our hearts in thanksgiving to our living and our loving God. Even in the midst of a global medical crisis, as, as, the, uh, as the restrictions maybe come to an end, but the pandemic seems far from over, we have so much to be thankful for, don't we? So much to be thankful for. And you know that the thanks that is uh, exhorted upon the Church of Christ here is, is not the kind of thanks that a child is forced to say to his grandma when he's given yet another knitted jumper for Christmas. No, this is, this is real thanksgiving, isn't it? So if you're really thankful for your, 
for your knitter jumpers, by the way. But no, this is, this is deep down sincere appreciation. This is heartfelt gratitude to God for what he's given to us. Paul is exhorting the church that in light of the grace that they have received and the gospel that they have believed, you are to be filled with thankfulness. And friends, the same goes for for each and every one of us here this morning. Whether or not we have experienced God's saving grace, we have all become the recipients of his common grace, haven't we? You think of how every day you've got food on the table, you've got a bed to sleep on, you've got clothes upon your back, you've got lungs to breathe, you've got a family and friends to love. Those things that we so easily take for granted, the the combination of all of these things, they do not come from luck or from chance, but they come from a God who is gracious. James chapter 1 verse 17 identifies the source for us. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. And so my question quite simply is, do you have an attitude of gratitude? Are you more taken up with what you don't have than what you do have? It's a trap that we so quickly fall into, isn't it? We are, we are entitled. Uh, we, we feel that, that maybe God owes us something for the works that we have done. But Paul in his letter uh, to the Romans in chapter 1 verse 21 says of the unbeliever, for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. I wonder, is that a, is that more of a description of you this morning? Are you someone who is, is quick to complain or quick to give thanks? Maybe you're familiar with that uh, national American holiday, uh, Thanksgiving. I was, uh, uh, out there in, uh, Texas a couple of years back and we didn't plan it, but we were there at the time of Thanksgiving. And it's a, it's a wonderful time, I think, and something that maybe we could adopt uh, in our own nation, uh, a day to just give thanks to God for the way that he has led us uh, through history. But you know, for the Christian, it's not just one day, is it? But every day is Thanksgiving for the believer. This is not just one out of 365 days, but it is the, the central focus of our entire life. I was reading the story uh, of uh, uh, a period of history in 1860 on a cold night in North America. Uh, this ship was setting off from the coast of Michigan en route to Chicago with 300 passengers on board. But an hour into the journey, the ship tragically crashed and it began to sink. And immediately a handful of people who were on board jumped onto the few lifeboats that were available And one of those was a man called Edward Spencer. And apparently as he looked from the safety of the lifeboats, uh, rather than sitting still to observe, he, he, he dived into the cold waters and he swam over the waves to rescue one and then two and then 17 people over a, a six hour period until he finally collapsed. And the heroic effort apparently took a, a permanent toll upon his health, leaving him paralyzed for the rest of his life and some decades later Spencer was in a church audience as his story was being told and he was invited up onto the stage and asked if 
if anything in particular stood out in his memory from that that fateful day. To which he replied, uh, of the 17 people that I saved, not one of them ever said thank you. If we're truly honest, uh, we can be much like those 17 survivors, can't we? In our Christian lives, we can be slow to acknowledge God for the blessings that he has given us. Uh, By the grace of God and his providential hand, we have been, as believers, saved from the brink of destruction, saved from those icy waters, as it were. And yet so often we're we're more vocal with our complaints than we are with thanksgiving. In fact, C.H. Spurgeon again, uh, noticed noted this kind of uh, attitude when he said that we are we are too prone to engrave our trials in marble and write our blessings in the sand and the lack of response of those rescued souls in that story could be said of the way that we so often fail to go back to god our brothers and sisters in christ if you are if you're saved this morning then verse 18 is a command to which We are duty bound, just as under the Old Testament sacrificial system, the people would offer up thank offerings as well as their sin offerings. So must we, though no longer under the old covenants, offer up our thanks corporately and individually for the abundance of God's provisions uh, in our life. Our friends, there are there are times, aren't there, when we are tremendously joyful. There are times when we are unusually prayerful and there are times when we are abundantly thankful but the context of each of these commands are perhaps wider than we might have first thought the exhortation is always without ceasing in everything and if you're struggling with that this morning then just just think of what you were think of where you were heading you were just like those shipwrecked souls clinging to the wreckage for dear life moments from death but Christ dived in and pulled you to shore we didn't stand a chance in our own efforts did we in our own strength we would have drowned we would have been lost for all eternity in the torments of hell but now we're en route to heaven because of Jesus Christ and so we must be actively engaged mustn't we In the midst of all that is going on in our world right now, we must be engaged in fitting these descriptions, fulfilling God's will for our lives, God's will for us in Christ. And this is how we do it, isn't it? That final phrase there, that it gives us the the, the energy, the, the strength that is needed to accomplish it all. The root of our rejoicing, the the focus of our prayers, the cause for our thanksgiving is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Our friends, do you love Jesus this morning? Are you following after him? And are you fitting the descriptions that is given of his people? I pray that you will be. Amen.